0: Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Cheryl Leach, a working mom in Texas, was stuck in traffic when her thoughts drifted to her two year old son, Patrick. She was always looking for ways to keep the little guy entertained. The former teacher turned writer at a kid's educational publishing company thought about the blankets and teddy bears that children frequently drag around with them and how wonderful it would be if those beloved items could come to life. She also remembered a recent trip to the museum and her son's new obsession with dinosaurs. And just like that, she envisioned a plush toy dinosaur that comes to life and entertains a backyard full of kids with songs and games. I'm Kathy Kanzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we spend time with a purple dinosaur sensation, with millions of fans who taught the ABCs, the one, two, threes, and reminded children that sharing means caring all while stirring up an unexpected level of hate from parents and other adults forced to watch the hit PBS show. This is the story of Barney. After Cheryl Leach came up with her brainstorm idea for the Talking Dinosaur in 1987, she approached DLM Incorporated, the Dallas company she worked for. They published children's educational products and Cheryl hoped they might agree to develop a series of videos featuring the prehistoric creature. Direct-to-consumer VHS tapes were the web series of that era. And a lot of individuals and small businesses were shooting them, hoping their show would become popular. But the board at DLM wasn't interested in Leech's idea and turned her down. That could have been the end of Barney, except for one important fact. Cheryl was married to the son of Richard Leach, who happened to be the founder and president of DLM. After hearing his daughter-in-law's idea, Richard agreed to back her project with $700,000 of his own money. With the cash, Cheryl started the Lions Group production company and brought on Kathy Parker, another former teacher and mum to a toddler, along with Dennis DeShazer, a video producer. Together, they made the original Barney home video series called Barney and the Backyard Gang. It consisted of three videos starring acting legend Sandy Duncan, best known for her role as Peter Pan on Broadway. In fact, each video started with a special message to parents from Sandy.
1: Hi, I'm Sandy Duncan. Most of you may know me from my work in theater and television, but I'm also a working mother, and like you, I'd like my kids to watch quality programming. The producers of these videos have made a commitment to quality in both entertainment and education. That's why they're calling it edutainment. The stories reinforce positive family values while the kids sing and dance along with the songs and rhymes we've all grown up with.
0: And with that, viewers were plunged into a world where a small stuffed toy comes to life and magically transforms into a six-foot-four talking and dancing dinosaur. Barney
1: is a dinosaur from our imagination. And when he's tall, he's what we call a dinosaur
0: sensation. The first video was released in August 1988, and it was called The Backyard Show, in it, Sandy plays mom to Michael and Amy, who want to surprise their dad with a special show for his birthday. Their stuffed purple dinosaur Barney comes to life to help them pull it off. They're singing, rhyming, and a little hokey pokey, typical Barney stuff. It was followed by another video called Three Wishes in December of 1988, and a third called A Day at the Beach in February 1989. Cheryl was a mom and a former teacher so she had lots of experience with children, but not so much with making videos. All she knew is she wanted to create something that was both educational and entertaining for kids. So before Cheryl started shooting, she did a little digging, asking kids in her neighborhood which educational songs, characters, and plot lines they enjoyed the best. The edutainment formula that she came up with combined songs, early childhood learning concepts, social lessons, and lovable, gentle characters. In these early videos, Barney looks a little bit different. He's still purple, but a darker, less vibrant shade. His message, however, has never changed.
1: I love you, you love me. We're as happy as can be With a
0: great big hug and a kiss from me to you Won't you say you love me too? Hi, kids! I love you. The Barney and the Backyard Gang videos looked hokey. They were sugary sweet and incredibly repetitive. But toddlers love them. Cheryl Leach and her company, The Lions Group, marketed the heck out of the videos, even sending free copies to preschools around the country to create a buzz. And it worked. They sold about a half a million copies. At fourteen ninety-five a pop, things were going pretty well. But a fluke discovery at a small video store would change their lives forever. In 1991, Larry Rifkin was the executive vice president for programming at CPTV, the PBS affiliate station in Connecticut. PBS had let it be known among its affiliates that it was interested in more children's programming after the success of Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. They wanted something that would appeal to toddlers that maybe weren't quite ready for those other shows. Rifkin didn't give the PBS request much thought, though, since CPTV didn't have a significant production budget. But then, by happenstance, on Super Bowl Sunday in 1991, Rifkin ended up at his local video store, beside a gas station on Route 69 in Prospect, Connecticut. Tucked on the shelves of the video store that is now long gone, Rifkin's four-year-old daughter, Leora, discovered a copy of Barney and the Backyard Gang. Rifkin assumed his daughter was just attracted to the colorful box. But when they got home, she wouldn't stop watching it he realized there might be more to Barney than he originally thought. Perhaps he had found what PBS was looking for. To be sure, Rifkin called up the parents of his daughter's four-year-old playmate, Emily. He asked if Emily could come over and watch the Barney video with Leora. He was creating his own little focus group of preschoolers to confirm if the purple dinosaur would appeal to more than just his kid. Turns out, Barney was a hit with Emily too, So Rifkin took a closer look at the format of the show and immediately realized he had struck gold. He called it Mr. Rogers in a Costume. Like the iconic PBS show, Barney was very loving and caring. But what made it unique is that the kids on the show were leading the action, and music seemed to be driving everything. Rifkin quickly secured a deal with Cheryl Leach's company, The Lions Group, as well as a $2.25 million grant from the non-profit group The Corporation for Public Broadcasting, to produce 30 episodes of the series. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But... What if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. On April 6, 1992, the half-hour show launched on PBS with a new name, Barney and Friends and a new, slightly slicker look. But only slightly. The show remained a low-budget production with simple painted backdrops that looked like they were straight out of the 1950s. Eight kid actors performed with Barney and his sidekick Baby Bop in skits solving the most basic of problems, accompanied by easy nursery rhyme type songs. And just like the videos before, the series was syrupy sweet and simple. And that was the point. This was a show for two- to five-year-olds, an audience that up until then had been untapped. Unlike other kid shows that threw in the occasional joke designed especially to entertain parents, Barney didn't even try to appeal to adults. For years, television producers developed programming that had broad appeal from adults to critics, while also entertaining for children. Take Sesame Street, for example. It's always been known for bringing on superstar guests— In the 90s, that included actors like Robin Williams, Whoopi Goldberg, and Julia Roberts. Not so with Barney, though. The show's biggest guest star was Mother Goose. And it turns out Barney didn't need the star power. Within a month of being on air, Barney and Friends had one and a half million viewers and had surpassed Sesame Street as the highest rated children's program on public television. In certain time slots, 99% of children ages 1 to 5 who watch TV were tuned into the show. TV Guide hailed Barney as the Big Bird of the 90s. It said, If Big Bird embodied the anxieties and neuroses of the 70s and 80s, Barney is a blissed-out bundle of affirmations, a supportive role model for the recovery decade. Barney was voiced by Bob West and brought to life by David Joyner, who bounced around in a 30-pound costume. He was equal parts hugs and reassuring phrases, like super de duper There was also a diverse cast of actors, boys and girls, who sang and danced with Barney. And yes, two future superstars appeared on the show as part of the cast— Before becoming massive Disney stars, both Selena Gomez and Demi Lovato were on Barney from 2002 to 2004. There were very few adults on the show, which may have been part of the appeal for young viewers. It was also highly interactive. Kids joined in to clap, dance, and march their way to learning their ABCs, colors, shapes, and other preschool skills. And for all of these reasons... Barney was hailed by educators and other experts. Parents liked it too, at least initially, because they knew that for 30 minutes each day, they could plop their toddler in front of the TV and get a brief guilt-free reprieve. So when PBS announced it would be cancelling the show after its initial 30-episode run because of budget issues, it didn't go over well. The public broadcaster was overwhelmed by letters and phone calls from its local stations and from viewers who wanted to protect Barney. So PBS took another look at its budget and juggled things around a bit, and in August 1992, Barney was saved from extinction. PBS set aside $1.75 million to make 20 new episodes. Rob Curran, an advertising representative and dad from Florida, was one of those parents whose kid was mesmerized by Barney. He himself was a big PBS watcher, and he was happy to introduce two-year-old Michelle to the channel's educational programs. One day, though,
1: I went away on a business trip for about a week, and uh, I came back, and you know, I walked in, and I expected my you know daughter to come, you know, to run lovingly into my arms the way she always did. But instead, uh, she was glued uh, to an episode of Barney and she didn't even realize I was there. So I I felt, uh, you know, kind of wounded. I felt, uh, I felt spurned and I felt jealous.
0: Not only that, Rob, like millions of parents around the nation, found himself unwillingly singing along with Barney and his backyard full of friends.
1: I had that problem with the I Love You song. You know, I love you, you love me. And also, you know, uh, with the Barney theme, you know, Barney is a dinosaur.
0: I can add to that list with my personal torment, Hey Mr. Knickerbocker, a Barney rap song about a guy who likes to boppity bop. Rob says these songs were designed to infect our brains. Because,
1: you know, the, the melodies came out of the Great American Songbook, you know the, the melodies came out, came out of um, this old man, and uh, you know, and Yankee Doodle, and so these songs were you know engineered to burrow into our consciousness and to remain there, you know, as earworms.
0: The "I Love You" song is by far the most recognizable Barney song, used by parents to soothe and sing their kids to sleep to this day. In 1992, an Indiana mom was surprised when she heard the song on The Barney Show because she had written it 10 years earlier and submitted it to an obscure publication for school teachers called Piggyback Songs. Piggyback printed the lyrics and gave Lee Bernstein a copy of the songbook in exchange for payment. Bernstein had originally written the I Love You song for her two young daughters. And after it was published by Piggyback Songs, She didn't really give it a second thought. That is until she started hearing random kids singing it, and she couldn't figure out why. When she connected her song to the hit show Barney, Lee called a lawyer. It turns out that Lee Bernstein had a pretty solid case. The lyrics to Barney's I Love You song were almost identical to the song she published 10 years earlier. And I guess sharing does mean caring, because in a surprising twist, reps from the show didn't fight her in court. Instead, they reached an undisclosed settlement that involved royalty payments and a writer's credit. But that wasn't the end of the legal wrangling. The next year, the company that published piggyback songs also sued Barney. And once again, an undisclosed settlement was reached between the two parties. While kids waited for new episodes to be produced after the first season, Barney went on a 65-city tour, making appearances at JCPenney stores in malls around the country, drawing thousands of kids and their parents, hoping to get a hug from the Purple T-Rex. Hordes of screaming preschoolers gathered at store entrances, chanting Barney's name until he appeared like a rock star, surrounded by security guards armed with walkie-talkies. Then the dinosaur would wade into the crowd, hugging, kissing, and shaking hands with the ecstatic kids. The Barney tour was part of a merchandising agreement with J.C. Penney, and by Christmas of 1992, the store was stocking 42 related Barney items, including lunch bags, luggage, bedsheets, T-shirts, slippers, and Barney underwear. Henry Scott, the president of J.C. Penney's children's division, was blown away by the excitement around Barney. I've been in this business for
1: 36 years, the retail business, and I've lived through E.T., I've lived through Cabbage Patch, I've lived through Land Before Time, but I have never seen a phenomena such as Barney. We are Barney mania at JCPenney right now.
0: The $20 stuffed Barney doll available at JCPenney's was one of the hottest Christmas gifts of 1992, selling over 2.2 million units in the U.S. And it was just the beginning The Lions Group also sold licenses to PlaySchool and Hasbro, which meant even more products were expected in the coming year. In fact, it was projected that $100 million worth of Barney swag would flood the market in 1993. Analysts said Barney, who was featured on People Magazine's list of most intriguing people in 1992, was giving the toy industry its biggest boost since the Cabbage Patch craze of the 80s. And that didn't sit well with some PBS watchers. They wondered whether the publicly-owned television network should be helping push products on little kids. They called Barney and Friends a giant infomercial for a stuffed animal and believed it was another example of the commercialization of kid shows on public television, which were supposed to be about quality education and not selling things. Of course, Barney wasn't the first PBS show to make big money from licensed products. In its heyday, Sesame Street had 5,000 products and brought in more money than Barney. But the difference was, Sesame Street was produced by the nonprofit Children's Television Workshop, which plowed its share of the money back into programming. The Lions Group was a for profit company and did not share any of the money it was making on Barney products with PBS. Plus, some even wondered if the show belonged on PBS in the first place. Why should a for-profit business get public assistance to bring Barney to life? Remember, the Lions Group received a $2.25 million grant from the nonprofit group the Corporation for Public Broadcasting to produce the original 30 episodes, and then another $1.7 million from PBS to make the next 20. Larry Jarvik, who in the 1990s wrote a book about PBS said that in reality, Barney's creators should be paying public television to run their show, considering how much money they were making off of merchandising. Initially, PBS defended the decision to support Barney, saying the show brought new viewers to public television and helped local stations raise massive amounts of money during pledge drives. As for Barney, his popularity continued to grow. And right on cue, the inevitable backlash began. Florida dad Rob Curran, who you heard from earlier, was among the first to get fed up. And when he saw an article in his local newspaper in early 1993 inviting kids to send in birthday cards for Barney, he used it as an opportunity to vent about the beast who had stolen the heart of his beloved daughter. Rob sat down and typed out the first edition of the satirical I Hate Barney Secret Society newsletter. And much to his surprise, the paper published it. It included the tagline, enough of this purple dinosaur crap, and it encouraged parents to take their lives back.
1: You know, so basically what I was trying to do uh, was offer a program of support for what I called. The BDFs, the Barney Dysfunctional Families, uh, the families that had uh, Barney addicts, okay?
0: National media quickly picked up on Rob's newsletter, and soon thousands of people were joining his secret society at a cost of $1.
1: I didn't realize uh, that I would become like the public face worldwide of the Barney backlash. So... There was nobody who was more surprised than me that this happened. Because remember, I started this as a joke, as a goof.
0: Most people got Rob's joke. He was just having a bit of fun at the expense of the big purple guy. He mailed out six newsletters in 1993 before retiring his secret society. But that wasn't the end of the Barney backlash. There was much more to come. The show was still on hiatus when Barney appeared in Washington on a float with Baby Bob, waving at the crowds who turned up for the inauguration parade for U.S. President Bill Clinton. Barney seemed to be everywhere. And by the time season two of his show arrived on PBS stations in September, 1993, preschoolers had learned the original 30 episodes by heart by watching the reruns over and over and over again. The new season brought back characters from the previous season and added three new children, while also adding in a new dinosaur named BJ, who was the precocious but lovable older brother of Baby Bop. BJ brought annoyance to a new level because he loved to be the center of attention and often announced his arrival with a whistle. Barney mania was at its peak. There were over 200 Barney items available at Toys R Us and other stores across North America. Sales in 1993 hit $500 million, again, with none of that trickling down to PBS. In an effort to negate some of the bad PR it was receiving over this issue, the Lions Group eventually agreed to share proceeds from Barney videotapes, as well as Barney's triple platinum album released on the EMI label in 1993. Barney's Favorites Volume 1, which included 27 bangers like Me and My Teddy Bear and The Stranger Song, entered the Billboard 200 at number 9 and was nominated for a Grammy. Barney was inescapable. He also had a syndicated 10-minute bedtime story radio program that aired weekly on 40 stations. There was also Barney Live at Radio City, which opened in New York in April 1994. That same month, a primetime TV special called Bedtime with Barney aired on NBC. By 1998, Barney remained the number one kid's show on PBS and was attracting over 2 million preschool viewers. It brought in $750 million in retail sales. And that year, Barney also starred in his first feature film, Barney's Great Adventure. The movie underperformed at the box office, and like the catastrophic asteroid that made real dinosaurs extinct, Barney never recovered. From there, the show started to see a steady decline, as PBS and other networks inspired by the success of Barney invested in more preschool programming. There were new shows like Blue's Clues, Dora the Explorer, and Clifford the Big Red Dog. The Barney bubble had burst. In a fitting tragedy of the 1997 Macy's Thanksgiving Parade, a massive Barney balloon float was struck by high winds and was at risk of breaking free. You can hear the crowd screaming in delight as the float handlers and police tried to get Barney under control. He was eventually brought down, and a swarm of police officers stabbed holes in Barney, who ended up a crumpled heap of purple in the middle of the road. Poor Barney. People seem to delight in his demise. In fact, the backlash against Barney eventually got pretty dark and tinged with violence, which didn't sit well with Barney's parent company, the Lions Group. They did everything in its power to fight against anything that infringed on their trademark. And there was a lot of it. For example, starting in 1997, the infamous sports mascot, the San Diego Chicken, routinely beat up a dinosaur that looked a lot like Barney. The Lions group sued, demanding $100,000 for every time the chicken flattened the purple guy. But a court ruled that the sketch was a legitimate parody. Then in 2001, a comedy website called Cybercheese posted a list called 150 Ways to Kill the Purple Dinosaur. This prompted lawyers from the Lions Group to send the website based in Olympia, Washington, a letter threatening immediate legal action if the list was not taken down. Cybercheese essentially told the lawyers to take a hike, calling the letter a worthless attempt and scare tactic. Barney's lawyers took aim at hundreds of such websites, which offered unique ways to maim or slay the Purple T-Rex. There was the site IsBarneySatan, another one called BarneyIsEvil, and even a web-based cult called DustyFeet.com, which promoted the termination of Barney. A Wired article looking into the backlash stated that Barney's owners had brought 77 lawsuits in 20 states alleging infringement of their intellectual property rights on Barney and his friends. In 2001, the Lions Group, which had become Lyric Studios, sold Barney to London-based Hit Entertainment for $275 million. Hit, which is now owned by Mattel, was determined to stop the slide in Barney's popularity. By 2001, the show had fallen from the number one kids program at PBS to number six. Hit made 20 new episodes, the first new material in about two and a half years, and backed them up with a $6 million ad campaign to remind parents about the benefits of Barney for preschoolers. It also launched a line of 16 new Barney toys and a 70-city nationwide stage tour. But you can't slow down evolution, and eight years later, in 2009, Barney was canceled. The reason for the cancellation has never been given but if you Google it, clickbait headlines will suggest it was canceled for dark and shocking reasons. Although none of those stories actually tell you what those reasons are. The closest thing to a scandal was revealed in 2018 when Vice reported that David Joyner, the man inside the Barney suit from 1991 to 2001, now runs a tantric sex business the article makes no suggestion that Joyner did anything inappropriate while playing the role of Barney. Perhaps a new three-part documentary on Barney will answer the question about why the show was cancelled. It's set to premiere later this year on Peacock. There are also reports that a new live-action Barney movie is in the works from Mattel Films. As for Bob West, the voice of Barney, 30 years on, he is still in high demand and makes regular appearances at conventions and other events to talk about Barney. In a recent interview, he reminded the kids who grew up watching the show that they will always hold a special place in Barney's heart. I love you, you love me. We're a happy family with a great big, Hug and a kiss from me to you won't you say you love me too i do love you all. Know, <laughs> thanks for joining me for this look back at barney and friends and thanks to rob curran who is great fun to talk to about the barney backlash My full interview with Rob is available to History of the 90s Patreon subscribers. If you want more 90s content, please head over to patreon.com slash history of the 90s. You can also reach me through Twitter and Facebook at 1990s history and on Instagram at that90spodcast. You can also send me an email anytime at 90s at curiouscast.ca. That's 90s at curiouscast.ca. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Gonzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more history of the 90s. 911? 911. What's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship! Ah, there was an explosion! Oh my god, the ship is sinking! I can't get out! There's water everywhere! we
1: going down! I've got a lock on your location. Stay with me. Hello. Hello. Hello? Are you there? Help is on the way.
0: Angela Bassett and Peter
1: Krause return in an all-new season of 9-1-1 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.